Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I need to begin this morning with a warning, a disclaimer. About halfway through my message today, I am going to address some issues of a delicate nature that relate to sexual issues. And so if you are here uh, this morning and you have children that are with you and you feel like that uh, you don't want to run the risk of what I'm going to say, then let me go ahead and encourage you either now uh, to leave and I will not be offended and uh, indeed respect uh, your judgment in making such a decision. Uh, let me also say before I say what I'm going to say, I will again uh, preface my remarks by this is about what I'm ab- about to do so that you again will be uh, forewarned. And again, if you feel the need uh, because you have children or you yourself, though I don't think I want to run the risk of hearing what uh, Danny has to say, then again, uh, you will have my permission to excuse yourself and uh, I will fully understand that. Uh, that's probably going to surprise you then in light of the title of my message in the text. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Not 2 Timothy. That's what I did when I brought my convocation. My wife this morning said, you're going to preach the same thing again? And I said, well, they might need to hear it again. But no, I'm not preaching the same message again. This is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. And the title of the message is A Great Commission Theology for Life. A Great Commission Theology for life. First Timothy chapter two, beginning with verse one. Paul writes, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions and <clears throat> giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved And to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles, a teacher to the nations in faith and in truth. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, the text that we know as the Great Commission, the word all should call for our careful attention because of the repetition of it in those verses. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, verse 18. Make disciples of all the nations, verse 19. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you in verse 20. And it would seem that the Apostle Paul was captured by this same passion as he saw in his Savior. And he wanted to see the same ignited in the heart of his young son in the ministry, Timothy. For he says in this text, 
He wants prayers to be made first of all and for all men. Verse one, he says he wants prayers to be made for all in authority. Verse two, he, like his God, desires that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse four. And he says, I am convinced that Jesus gave himself a ransom for all in verse six. In other words, Paul had what I would call a great commission theology for life. And Paul had this kind of theology because he worshiped, loved and served a great commission God, a great commission Lord. And you see, first Timothy two, one through seven is all about the basics of a great commission theology for life. There's nothing really fancy in this text. There's nothing really complicated in this text. It is clear, it is straightforward for anyone to see and understand. The issue is not that we don't comprehend what Paul is saying. The problem is we don't obey what Paul is saying. And so in these verses, Paul lays before us four basic building blocks of a great commission theology for life. Let me note them for you very quickly. Number one, God calls us to pray for everyone. That is the truth of verse one and verse two. God calls us to pray for everyone. Paul begins with a word of exhortation or encouragement. Therefore, I exhort, I encourage that you would pray. And then he notes five things about the prayer that he calls young Timothy and the church at Ephesus to pray. First of all, he says prayer should be a priority first of all. Secondly, he says that prayer should be comprehensive. He just piles on the words related to our prayer life. Supplications, that is petitions or requests. Prayers, the most general and basic word. Stephen Olford says that always when you see the word prayer, think in the context of our devotional life and our intimacy with our Lord. Intercessions, that is intervening prayer and the giving of thanks. So prayer is to be a priority, first of all. It is to be comprehensive, and it is also thirdly to be inclusive. We're called to pray, first of all, for all men. And also, fourthly, it is specific because we're to pray in particular for kings and all who are in authority. And then fifthly, there is a purpose to our praying that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. As verse 4 is going to make very clear, this is nothing less than evangelistic praying. This is great commission praying. Uh, this is not prayer as usual, as we find in most of our churches. No, Paul is recruiting the prayers of believers for the salvation of the nations and those who lead the nations. And don't miss the historical moment. Paul is writing somewhere in the mid-A.D. 60s. Since A.D. 54, sitting on the throne in Rome up until the date of A.D. 68, is a man by the name of Nero. And yet Paul would say, pray for Nero. Pray for the various rulers in Judea and in Samaria and in Galilee. Pray for those who crucified our Lord. Pray for those in authority. And brothers and sisters, hear me and hear me well. It does not matter who our leaders are. God calls us to pray for them. I have been involved in terms of the political process since I was 18 years old. I have voted in every election I could vote in since I was 18. 
And from that time, the presidents have been Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush, the elder, uh, Bill Clinton, George Bush, the younger, and now Barack Obama. And I have prayed consistently for every single one of them. And I must tell you that I am sometimes embarrassed at white evangelicals in recent days when it comes to how they approach the man that is now in the White House. Shame on you. If you behind his back and in snide and condescending ways criticize him and ask that God would deal harshly with him rather than praying that God would protect him, that God would guide him, that God would give him wisdom from above. That's what I pray. That's what I ask. I believe that's what my God expects of me based upon 1 Timothy chapter 2. But I not only pray for the leaders in America. I believe that the text indicates we're to pray for the leaders outside as well. In other words, prayer for our nation and prayer for all nations, prayer for our leaders and all leaders will be at the very heart of a great commission resurgence sweeping across our denomination and also our land. The great student and writer of prayer, E.M. Bounds, said it this way, prayer and missions are bosom companions. And he is certainly correct, for it will take us out of our parochialism and our nationalism. It will get us out of our forts and bomb shelters, and we will then begin to have a burden for our country and every country, our culture and every culture, our leaders and every leader. Indeed, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in London, said, We do not know what God may do for us, but pray. I believe this is true for our nation, and I believe this is true for the world. Indeed, I am absolutely convinced more than ever, we will not reach the Muslims apart from a fervent prayer life for their salvation. We will not reach the Buddhist, and we will not reach the Hindu, and we will not reach the Jew, and we will not reach the secularist, and we won't reach our neighbors, and we won't reach and make a difference in the prostitution rows that dot Southeast Asia that my wife and I saw up close and personal last summer, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teenage girls enslaved in an industry that they will never be delivered from apart from our intervening prayers on their behalf. Our nation cries for our prayers. All the nations cry for our prayers. So let you and me be diligent to pray for our leaders, to pray for the nations. Let us be diligent to pray for the unreached people groups, the dictators and the despots. Let us pray as Jesus told us to pray in Matthew 9, 38. Therefore, that he would send out laborers into his harvest. I believe we fail to reach our nation and the nations because we fail to pray. Paul also notes in this text that this prayer life not only has a goal for the nations and our nation, it also has a goal for us as well. He notes there in verse 2 that we may lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it this way, so we can be quietly about our business of living simply in humble contemplation. John Piper, I think, gets at the heart of what Paul is saying here when he says this in verse 2. If you want your prayers to do the most good for the greatest number of people. That's a good way to start. If you want your prayers 
to do the most good for the greatest number of people. Be sure to include in your prayers those persons whose decisions create the conditions in which the purposes of the gospel prosper. Thus, it is important to pray for leaders because the conditions they create either advance or they will impede the gospel. And God calls us to pray for everyone. Point number two, God desires for all to be saved. Verse three, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Verse three is what we call a hinge verse. It looks back to verses one and two, but also looks forward to verse four. And it kind of connects the ideas together for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I believe Paul would say our prayers should be as broad and expansive as God demands and our heart should be as big and expansive as God desires. Indeed, we are connected with verse 4 where we are told, pray for all men. Yes, we're to pray especially for world and national leaders. It is, first of all, good, a word that Paul uses more than 20 times in the pastoral epistles. It is good. And secondly, it is acceptable. The, the ESV says it is a pleasing thing in the sight, literally, before the God who is our Savior, the Savior of us, God. By the way, he refers to God as our Savior in chapter 1, verse 1. Again, in chapter 4, verse 10. In Titus 1, 3, Titus 2, 10, and Titus 3, 4. In other words, he is driving home the point that God is the God who saves all. God is the God who desires the salvation of all. Why is it then that you and I find it acceptable to pray in this kind of a way? Verse 4 thunders the answer. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Note that to be saved means you have the knowledge of the truth. No one can be saved apart from the truth of the gospel. And if they don't know the truth of the gospel, then they can never, ever, ever, ever be saved. And he is going to articulate for us very well the essence of the truth of the gospel in verse 5 and also in verse 6. But let me dwell upon the main thrust of verse 4 for a moment. He is the Savior God who desires, who wishes, who wants all to be saved. That statement is profound. That statement is quite simple. There are no qualifications. There are no exceptions. If you have a theology that is trying to find some way to manipulate this verse to say something that it plainly does not say, you've got a messed up theology and you need to jettison it and get rid of it. The text is clear. God desires... God wants all people to be saved. No qualifications, no exceptions. But having said that, the verse invites theological reflection. The verse invites for us to stop for a moment and think through exactly how we put this verse into the overall revelation of God's Word. And so let me make quickly just two theological observations that I hope you will think on deeply and longly after this service is over. First of all, let me say it to you this way. God does desire all to be saved, but He does not decree that all will be saved. In other words, there's no soteriological universalism hiding in this verse. 
God truly and genuinely desires some things that sadly do not come to pass. There's some things that he desires, but what he desires does not always match up perfectly with what he decrees. Secondly, I think, again, John Piper is helpful here. We are confronted with the biblical reality of what is often called the two wills doctrine of God. The two wills doctrine of God. Uh, There's a a lengthy uh, discourse that John has written on this. Others have written extensively on this. Let me again, for our purposes this morning, simply try to, to make it more easily understood. God is willing to save all, although he does not will to save all. God is willing to save all. But he has not willed to save all. In other words, as I said a moment ago, he desires the salvation of all, but he has not decreed the salvation of all. Now, the Bible, again, is crystal clear. God delights in the eternal perishing of no one. No one. God is never pleased, never delighted when even one soul goes into hell. That does not make God happy. And yet at the same time, God has designed a world where some do perish eternally. Thus, we have to be very careful here theologically. And we must distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what he has designed will happen. You say, Danny, there is tension here. You better believe it. Uh, There is divine mystery here. You've got that right. But in this text, there is no mystery in the revealed, basic, bedrock, biblical truth. God desires all men, all persons to be saved. This is his heart. This is his desire. And therefore, it must be our heart and it must be our desire as well. Put in your mind Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 32, where God says to us, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So let me for a moment get uh, into the real world and ask, how are we doing internationally and at home? How are we doing internationally and uh, at home? Uh, Just two nights ago, as I was putting the final touches on this message, I went online to the Joshua Project. I would encourage all of you sometime to go to Google, put in Joshua Project, go there and look at the lostness of the world. As I Googled it the other night, I discovered that as of this point right now today, There are 6,649 unreached people groups in the world. 6,649 unreached people groups in the world. That is, groups who have either no gospel witness at all, I mean zero, or they have next to a zero gospel presence in their midst. You say 6,649 people groups. How many people is that? 2.72 billion. 2.72 billion who know little or nothing of Jesus. The top 100 unreached, least reached people groups alone totals 1.7 billion people. You say, where are people like that located? In countries like India, Iraq, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Myanmar, China, Nigeria, Japan, Pakistan, Indonesia, North Korea, Turkey, Afghanistan, Yemen, Bangladesh, Thailand, and Uzbekistan. 
In fact, this will rock your world. India alone, India alone has 46 of the largest unreached people groups in the world. 46 in one country. China has seven. Pakistan has seven. Indonesia has five. Now, I know some of you get put out of sorts with me because you're like, man, he is just always hammering us. I mean, he is just working us over, laying us out, beating us like a yard dog about going to the nations. Well, let me just tell you, I ain't stopping. Okay, so either get right or get lost. It's your call, but I ain't stopping. So just understand that. But you misread my heart if that's all you hear, because I care greatly about this nation, too. I care very much about what Dr. Ashford mentioned a moment ago. So I also, the other night, as I was putting the finishing touches on, pulled up some research just to see how are we doing at home. And the fact is that we're not doing well. The fact is it is heartbreaking the rapid nature in which we are losing ground. Do you realize from 1990 to the year 2000 when the last comprehensive study was done, 1990 to 2000, Christianity in America grew at a 5% rate. At a 5% rate. You say, how does that compare with others? I'm glad you asked. Non-religious secularism grew at 110%. Islam grew in America at the same time, 109%. Buddhism grew at the same time, 170%. Hinduism grew at the same time, 237%. Even the whacked out Unitarian Universalist Church grew at 25%. Native Americans, 119 percent. The Baha'i faith, 200 percent. New Ageism, 240 percent. Sheikhism, 338 percent. Scientology, another whacked out group, 22 percent. Taoism, 74 percent. And Deism, just a general, generic, yeah, I think there's a supreme being out there, 717 percent growth in the years 1992 2000. So I have a question. Do you really believe that God desires all people to be saved? If you do, then we need to do more. The nations are crying. Our nation is crying. Bottom line, our God deserves more. Our God deserves better. And he loves you and me so much. He allows us to share in his mission. If only we will join him now. I'm about to be delicate, so if you feel like you need to excuse yourself at this moment, you go right ahead. And I'll wait just a second. Okay. If you uh, keep up with a certain segment of the Baptist world, uh, you will know that uh, since our 2020 conference, we have received uh, some serious criticism uh, for having had uh, particular speakers on our campus, in particular Mark Driscoll. Now, I need to say to you, the overwhelming responses that I have gotten have been positive and good. But let me say this to you. Uh, I'm not interested in popularity contest. I don't care whether you uh, like what I do or don't like what I do. I really don't care. Because all I really care about is am I doing that which pleases God? That's really all I care about. I don't do it perfectly, but in my life, at the top of the rung is, will this please the Lord? And if I think the answer is yes, I'll do it if everybody's against me. And if I don't think it is, I won't do it even though everybody wants me to. So I'm not interested in popularity contests, so I'm not caring. It doesn't matter to me what the tallies are out there. That doesn't matter to me. 
In, in particular, uh, Pastor Driscoll has been criticized in this way uh, to me, mostly behind my back, but I still, you know, you still find out things are said behind your back because people, for whatever motivations, will see that it gets to you. Uh, the, the, the criticism has been he is not the kind of role model that we should be putting before our students. Well, let me say a couple of things to that. First of all, I think you're smart and not stupid. I, I do. And so I think you have the ability to listen to any speaker, including this one, and say, you know what? I think what he is saying and doing there is a good thing. And I may emulate it or follow it in some way. And I think what he is saying or doing over here is not such a good thing. And so I, I don't think I'm going to follow or emulate that. I actually think you have enough sense to process that and make good, informed decisions based upon biblical truth and biblical categories, all right? Uh, secondly, would I say to you this morning that I would want you to emulate in every way the model for ministry of Mark Driscoll? No. But then I wouldn't want you to do it for me either. Because I mess up, uh, I do dumb things, uh, I make mistakes. And so when you're looking at me, whether you're looking at Mark or whether you're looking at anybody, you should always do what you do, filtering that information through the lenses of the purifying Word of God. Okay? Now, would I commend to you this morning, and I'm saying this publicly for a number of reasons, would I commend to you this morning many aspects of the ministry of Mark Driscoll? I sure would. I sure would. I commend the fact that he is an inerrantist. I commend the fact that he is an expository preacher. I commend the fact that he is a complementarian who believes that God calls men to be men and to be very godly, masculine men as husbands and as fathers. I commend the fact that he believes in the exclusivity of the gospel. I commend the fact that he has a tremendous burden to reach lost people with the gospel. I commend the fact that he is a good husband and a good father by all accounts of those who know him and know him well. And I commend him for having the courage to, one, preach through the Song of Solomon, something I've done on a number of occasions. And I commend him also for being transparent with his people and also inviting them to ask him questions that would enable him to minister to them where they are hurting and where they have questions. So, do I think it's appropriate for in an audience like this that are all mature adults to talk about very uh, intimate things in a very careful way? Yes, I do. Do I think it would also be appropriate to do it and maybe even in a little bit, little bit more intensity in a small group, more private, for those who in particular have questions? Yes, I do. And do I also think, given our technological age, that there's anything wrong with Mark posting out of 3,500 questions that he received during that series, uh, questions and responses that, again, his people were asking overwhelmingly? I commend that. Now, would I have given every answer to every question that he raised and answered? No, I probably would not even put all the questions on there that he did nor would I have given all the answers that he did. But let me say once more, I commend him for wanting to pastor and guide 
and help his people. As he said to me personally, my church is filled with women who have been sexually abused by their fathers, their stepfathers, their brothers, and other men. Filled with women that have been sexually abused. My church is also filled with men who have been enslaved and are at this moment enslaved to pornography. And so as a result of that, they've got a, a world that is all messed up when it comes to thinking in a biblical way about this wonderful gift called sex. Last year, I was at a Baptist college. I was given the assignment to speak on the Bible and sex, and so I spoke to that subject. Uh, after the messages that I delivered, five young ladies, five young ladies in their, 19, I guess, 19, 20, 21, in that age group, came up to me. And they said, uh, we appreciate what you said this morning about the Bible and sex. I said, well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. Then one of them got about three inches from my nose and said, but I want to ask you a question. Why didn't you address the subjects of masturbation, oral sex, and anal sex? Why didn't you talk about that? I looked at her and I said, well, just to be honest with you, I uh, had not intended, I had no plans for that to be a part of my presentation. Secondly, I, I'm just curious. Is that like a major issue around here? And her response was, yes, it is a major issue. We talk about it all the time. I said, you, you girls talk about it all the time. She said, no, all of us, guys and gals, talk about it all the time. And we talk to each other about it as well. Well, well I have to confess to you, even though I think I'm pretty much in touch with things, I, I, was, I was taken back by that. I was not all that prepared for that particular uh, confrontation. So I went to the student minister, and I said, I'm just curious. I just got kind of... Uh, Confronted, uh, uh, dressed down, because I didn't deal with masturbation, oral sex, and anal sex. And these young ladies said, that's a big issue on this campus. His response was, it's not just a big issue on our campus, it's a big issue on every campus. He said, here's the deal, Danny, Dr. Aiken. We have convinced our students that come to our Baptist colleges for the most part that uh, premarital sex is wrong. That, that They may not live up to it, but they at least accept that the Bible teaches that premarital sex is wrong. But then they want to know, all right, what about masturbation? What about oral sex before marriage? And then he said, given what so many of them have experienced in their lives through the Internet and other means, They've just got questions that I seriously doubt previous generations thought a whole lot about. And, of course, if they thought about them, they certainly were not going to talk about them. I'm just going to put my cards on the table. I think it is ministerial malpractice not to talk about such issues. That's my own judgment. Now, you don't have to agree with me. And, indeed, you may think that uh, I am a fool and that perhaps I'm not even qualified any longer to be president of this institution and you are certainly welcome to that judgment. But I'm convinced that when we have people that have been abused, when we have people that have perversion uh, crammed down their throat, when we have people that don't know how to think in biblical categories about these and other issues like them, I, I ask the question, if the church and the ministers don't address these issues for them, then who will and where will they get their information? Now, that doesn't mean that I would necessarily do it in exactly the same way that others do, such as Mark. But I will tell you, I commend him for being what I think 
was a faithful pastor to try to minister to his people where they are. And the reason I bring it up at this particular point is because I know what drives that particular pastor is the heart that he received from God to see as many people saved as he possibly can. And he recognizes that once they come to Christ, they've got all sorts of questions that need to be answered. And one of the best ways to find out what your people are needing to have answers to, what a novel idea is to ask them is to ask them. And granted, most of the folks in your church, 50 and over, are going to really struggle with what I just said. In fact, the, the words I just, the phrases I just used, if, if I were in your local church, you know very well there'd have been a number of hearts that would nearly have stopped or gone into overdrive with the phrases that I mentioned. In contrast, those in this room that are in their 30s and 20s, the odds are 95, if not 99% of you, we weren't phased by it because you have seen and read and heard a lot worse in, unfortunately, your short lifetime. All I'm saying is if you have a desire to see all people saved, you will, first of all, wisely contextualize your ministry. And by the way, go to our website, look at the Mark Driscoll Unplugged interview. You'll hear Dr. Nelson talk to him about contextualizing ministry. And does he want to see people reproduce Mars Hill across America? He said, goodness, no. He said, Mars Hill works well in Seattle. I doubt it would work all that well in South Georgia. I think he's right. And so if God happens to call you to South Georgia, I would just encourage you to be very sensitive to your context. Why? Because your ultimate goal, praying that you have the heart of God, is to see as many people saved as possible. All right. Let me move on now to what I want to say as I conclude, and I'll watch my time. Number three, God has called us to pray for everyone. God desires for all to be saved. And number three, God has designated Jesus as the only Savior. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Michael Green, the wonderful historian of evangelism, has put it very well, and I quote, However expressed, whether as the Messiah of the Old Testament expectation, as Lord over the demonic powers, or whatever other category of interpretation was employed, the early preachers of the good news had one subject and only one subject, and that subject was Jesus. Paul now then moves to the heart of his Great Commission theology, and it certainly echoes the words that you have heard previously. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Paul has, uh, or Peter has said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation under heaven given by, there, there's no salvation under heaven given whereby men must be saved other than this one name, the name of Jesus. Here, Paul simply joins hands with Jesus and with Peter, and he says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Three quick observations of what is most certainly an early confessional statement of faith. One, there's only one God. He is reflecting upon the first two commandments and the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, thunders in the background. Secondly, there's only one mediator. There's only one go-between between God and sinful humanity. And once more, His name is Jesus. 
Here is the only divine human negotiator between God and man, heaven and hell. And lest you doubt that, take out the name Jesus and slip in any other name at the end of verse 5, and you will plunge yourself into the world of heresy and blasphemy. The world of Satan and demons. The world of hell and lostness. Adrian Rogers said it so very well. Salvation is not so much a plan as it is a man. And his name is Jesus. There's only one God. There's only one mediator. And number three, our mediator gave himself a ransom for all. He gave himself a vicarious offering, a substitutionary offering. He gave himself for all. He gave himself a ransom. That is a payment. Again, I suspect that Paul was reflecting upon the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, where he says, the son of man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. There, Jesus does something very interesting. He weds two Old Testament images that they had not previously seen come together. He weds the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He weds the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7. He says, yes, Messiah is going to be the great apocalyptic Son of Man, but He will usher in His kingdom as the suffering servant of the Lord. He says He gave His life a ransom for all. That is, His death avails for any and all who place their faith in Him. So in verse 5, He's our mediator. In verse 6, He is our Redeemer. And He provides an atonement, a way of salvation, a way of reconciliation that is welcome and sufficient for all. And yet, do not miss the vital biblical truth made plain by God's Word. The way is open to all. But there is only one way. The way is open to all. But there's only one way. And once more, let me say, if you have it allows for any means of salvation other than through Jesus, then you are calling Jesus a liar. You say, well, I just thank God. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think. Your thinking, like my thinking, needs to line up at every point with the thinking of Jesus and the revealed Word of God. Jesus says there's only one way, and Paul says there's only one mediator. And unless people hear the message of this mediator, they will not be saved. God has designated Jesus as the only Savior. Finally, God has appointed us to proclaim the message. Verse 7. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Robert Coleman in his classic, The Master Plan of Evangelism, says it this way. The need of the hour is a return to the kind of evangelism which majors in people winning other people to Christ and building those they have won into disciples who can win and build others. Therefore, Paul says, yes, I am a preacher, a a herald. Yes, I am an apostle, a sent one. But also, I am a teacher to the nations. What I do, I do in the context, he says here, of faith and truth, of fidelity and veracity. In other words, check out my ministry. Check out my life. I believe you will see both my message and my ministry 
can withstand the closest scrutiny of any fan or any foe. God has appointed us to proclaim his message. If you study the history of missions, you know that the first great missionary movement began among the Moravians in the post-Reformation period. And in studying the Moravians, a historian by the name of A.C. Thompson said it like this. I love this quote. So fully was the duty of evangelizing the heathen lodged in their minds that the fact of anyone entering personally upon that work never created a surprise. It is not regarded as a thing that calls for widespread heralding as if something marvelous or even unusual were at hand. In other words, someone said, God's called me to go here. Great. Wonderful. No surprise. God's called another person to go here. Great. Wonderful. No surprise. God, to go as a missionary was so much a part of who they were, it was never a surprise when people went. I want that to be true here. I want that to be so evident at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary that as people by the droves go, it, it will not be anything unusual. It will not be anything that we see as a surprise. It's just the normal way things happen. Because we have the same heart for the nations that you find in our Lord. John Wesley was greatly impacted by the Moravians, as again, students of history know. And perhaps it was their influence that caused him to pin this prayer to his Lord. I am no longer mine, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and to your disposal. Can you say this? Can I say this? A great commission Christian can. Brothers, our God is a great commission God. We must be a great commission people. Spurgeon said it like this. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to not go there. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how, in its simplicity, it challenges us to rethink our lives and our priorities. And I thank you that, indeed, you have called us to pray for all men. And I thank you that you desire all men to be saved. And, Lord, I rejoice in the fact that there is a mediator between God and men, and his name is Jesus. And, Lord, how I thank you that you appointed all of us to proclaim that message. May we be faithful wherever you send us. May we be true to your gospel wherever we proclaim the message. And may it be that we will stand joyfully at your side when the multitudes stand before the throne, knowing that you gave us the opportunity to be a part of what you were doing in bringing the nations to yourself 
and we were obedient and simply got to be a part and enjoy what our great commission God has been doing since Genesis chapter 3. We love you because you have loved us first. May we indeed be faithful ministers of your gospel. I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.